you're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. There it is. I hit a button and the magic begins. The energy flows. My guest today is someone that a lot of people know. Uh, he is a thought leader of thought leaders. Um, I asked him, are you marketing sales? He's, he's all the C's. He's a revenue leader is what, how I would call him. Uh, a New York tech veteran, a rock band, rock star. Years of experience helping companies with their go-to-market strategies, growth, the alignment of sales, marketing, and operations host of the Sales Hacker Podcast, founder of the Revenue Collective, Sam Jacobs. How are you, sir? Hi, Casey. I'm doing all right. You, you are like, there was a spider web. You're in the middle of it. And you're connected to all these people and different, different walks of life and all the revenue, all the revenue people are in your web. <laughs> I feel like you're the uh, godfather. Perhaps I would hope, I mean, it, web sounds as, you know, me- I don't know. I'm not trying to entrap anybody. That, that's uh, true. That's true. <laughs> but, uh, I am connected terrible to a lot like, of Harry people. Potter references and all that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, web, uh, I don't know. Kindergarten. I don't know. Some kind of. <laughs> yeah. We're all just running around <laughs> trying to make friends and get things done for sure. <laughs> exactly. Some kind of rescue animal haven for battered and damaged people. Um, all I guess we're all things. wondering, do you have tigers? <laughs> <laughs> You know, not anymore. Not, not anymore. anymore. After, yeah, they're a little uh, dangerous. So, yeah. so the theme of our show, it's our marketing leadership series, but also the alignment with sales, the, the idea of revenue, um, and then attribution and all these things, they're, they're all combined. So what I want to do is I want to pass you something real quick. It's kind of heavy. So bear with me. Okay, here you go. All right, here's Thor's hammer. You got it? Oh my Lord, it? I got it. I'm going to okay. pick it up. One, here we oh, go. He just one hands it like it's a tennis racket. I know. Well, that's why he's a God and we are mere mortals. Yes. Well, (laughs) I'm in the house of the gods now asking you about things. So take Thor's hammer and smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, set the record straight once and for all. Okay, I will. Here is my current pet peeve and the thing that I'm, uh, you know, walking around telling everybody about, including my dogs and my wife, and uh, (laughs) they don't care to listen. I think there, there, there's been an evolution of marketing over the last 20 to 30 years, as we all know, and probably right around the time of predictable revenue, you know, pre-predictable revenue and Aaron Ross, I think marketing was the old form of marketing, which is frankly that nobody really knew what it meant and that it was about branding and the generation of collateral. Marketing was the department that handled the trade shows and marketing was the department that, you know, design the logo and it wasn't thought of particularly highly and right. and really the KPIs or the goals weren't particularly defined um, and then beginning around really the growth of B2B SaaS uh, Dave Scock Aaron Ross Jason Lemkin all of these people started talking about marketing in a more interesting and complicated way where the purpose of marketing became clear and it became to and Aaron, Aaron Ross would say, you know, he hasn't actually like operated or led a company in a very long time, but he would say that the goal of marketing is to generate leads and drive pipeline. And um, I don't actually like, I don't completely agree uh, with that, with that statement. And I think that the best marketers really never lost sight of the fact that brand is important and that you cannot. So here's the myth. The myth is yeah. that marketing must be measured like a sales team and that uh, attribution is the key driver of success. And we need to be able to take every lead and understand exactly where it came from and what was the trigger that led to their purchasing decision. And we need to allocate enough of those triggers to things that the marketing team did so that we know that the marketing team is paying for itself and helping the business grow. And this focus on attribution, I think, has gotten so many people turned around and I yeah. think what it's done is really impacted the buyer experience because the goal of marketing, so again, pre-2010, it was probably all brand and nobody really knew what it was. And then from 2010, maybe to like 2018, 19, 
it was, it's just demand gen. And nobody really even knows what that means. They know that it means drive leads, but they don't know how or they don't know why. But they say marketing's job is to generate leads and to generate pipeline. And I'm going to do, I'm going to measure, and everything must be measured because the world is, you know, there's no, it's not analog. It's a digital world and we can distill every single decision a human being makes into a binary decision tree. And obviously you can tell, am I allowed to swear on this show? Yeah, you can swear. Great. (laughs) You can tell that I think that that's bullshit and that's not how people, but the problem with this emphasis on attribution is, first of all, it's not true. Like that isn't how people buy it attribution typically now there, there are, you know, maybe some tools and I'm not a CMO. So, you know, our, our CMO community can answer this more definitively, but there are full cycle attribution, you know, tools. But a lot of the times when marketers are talking about attribution, what they mean is first touch or last touch, right? First yeah. touch was the first experience that the buyer had come, did it come from marketing or last touch was the last thing that happened to the buyer. What did that come from marketing? And you can imagine so many different times that people see a display ad on LinkedIn, but don't click on it. And then they yeah. go to the pricing page and request a demo. Maybe they don't, they request a demo, but go cold. And then an SDR reaches out to them because they're an email address that's been sitting in the CRM for a year or two. And then they take the demo and then it turns out to be a buying opportunity. And that attribution maybe goes to the SDR team or maybe it goes to the marketing team. And the point is that all of these things it becomes clear that marketing has one goal, which is to grab email addresses and then attach them to their activities. And that means that there's not enough of an emphasis on brand. And it means that every time a buyer interacts with the company, they are just bombarded with messages the minute that they show any kind of interest or engagement because because marketers are so focused on attribution. So for example, I host, you know, I run this community it's a community of people that buy sales and marketing technology. So obviously we have people that want to sponsor the community. So inevitably, who am I talking to? I'm talking, you know, and not me, but our, our sales team, right? The sponsorship sales team is talking to the, um, the field marketing team and the demand gen team at these companies. And they have no long-term vision at all. They have no, maybe the CMO does, but the way that, that this, this persona has been incentivized. And by the way, this doesn't mean that these are bad people. It has nothing to do with the quality of their right. character. Ha- they're, they're doing their job. But their job is to get email addresses and attach them to campaigns in Salesforce or whatever your CRM is, HubSpot, whatever, so that you can have attribution around, we sponsored this dinner, this many people became opportunities, this many people were influenced by these opportunities. Therefore, I have a clear ROI on the fact that this dinner cost $4,000 or $10,000 or whatever. So we're dealing with these field marketing people as, as, you know, and they are aggressively grabbing email addresses. And of course, you know, they have, I want the pre-reg list, I want the reg list. And then as soon as the people attend some kind of event or engage with this activity that is sponsored by this, this company, they are just hammered, you know, in they go to the database. And then it's SDR email after SDR email. It is uh, you know, marketing message after marketing message. Sometimes I got a message from somebody that says, listen, I logged onto this webinar. Uh, two of the speakers didn't set up their mics properly. I couldn't hear anything. I logged off and now I've gotten email, you know, 12 emails from one of the companies that was sponsoring that webinar. Wow. And so, so I think that there's this myth. So here's where I'm going with it. I don't think, I don't think, I don't, I don't think marketing's ROI is being measured effectively. I think to the point of sales and marketing alignment, I understand that people want to discreetly say this deal came from an account executive source, this deal independently, this deal came from the marketing team, and this is how much marketing contributed to the pipeline, and this is whether we not or not we know that the CMO is worth their salary or not and worth the allocation of this budget. I understand that need, but I don't believe that that's how people buy things. I certainly don't think that that that's how people become members of Revenue Collective is any one specific activity. What they do is we're putting stuff out into the world all the time and we hope that it's useful. And over time, it penetrates people's brains. And that penetration is an accumulation of interactions, an accumulation of messages, an accumulation of moments. And finally, there's a moment at which it reaches a tipping point and there's a million different reasons why. And then they become, then they enter the sales pipeline and either close or, you know, they, they either close one or close loss. So long story long, but you know, you it's uh, yeah. you asked me to do, to take Thor's hammer, so here I am doing it. I just think Smash. that brand needs to be a more comprehensive part of 
how marketers think. And I think that they need to think more holistically. They, they mean, probably me, I mean, CEOs, marketers and salespeople need to work more closely together and be aligned around one common goal, which is revenue generation. And I think we need to be willing to a certain extent to lower the throttle on attribution of each and every single email address against the activity that so that supposedly triggered their interest. When the reality is that it's the sum total of thousands of activities that will trigger their interest. So that's my my marketing myth is that everything that marketing does can be measured and therefore can be assigned an ROI and we need to be ruthless about attribution. That's a myth that I would like to smash. Wow. It's uh it's like shots fired. You're coming out guns blazing. Again, <laughs> revenue mafia. Revenue mafioso right here. But it's it's such a sacred cow to a lot of people. It's a it's an important thing, attribution. Why why are we so it's like the, the bar door, barn door has swung the too far. Like in the beginning, we didn't give a shit about anything. We we're making things pretty. But now it's like, now we're just, to your point, so obsessed with the email and then tacking all the touches. Like who cares what the touches? Make sure you just touch it so that we get credit for it. Why are we so obsessed with attribution, do you think? Well, marketers are asking for a lot of money. And I think it's a reasonable thing to say, listen, yeah. if I'm going to spend $10 million, I got to figure out whether it was worth it or not. Right. So I understand that need, but I just, I, I think that there needs to be a broader celebration. You know, I'm a CEO. I care about brand. I, I think that yeah. some of these conversations are in the bowels of the marketing department and maybe CMOs aren't empowered enough to talk about the power and the importance of brand and brand investment. And basically to tell the best experiences that we've had, Revenue Collective has had with sponsors. And, you know, thank God that 99% of our revenue comes from membership dues. So we are not so beholden to people that want to just smash our email list and just piss people off, you know, uh, six ways to Sunday. But the best experiences I've had, either I've negotiated directly with the CEO or I've negotiated with a CMO who says, and this is, you know, great CMO. One of my favorites is Kyle Lacey, the CMO. Yeah, I chatted with him the other day. Yeah, yeah he's a yeah, great he's dude. a fantastic human being and, um, and a good friend and a great marketer. And he said, and he sponsors some revenue collective stuff. And, you know, they paid for like a couple of webinars. And I said, Kyle, just so you understand, like lessonly one or two webinars isn't going to move the needle on anything. Like you need to be consistent mm. presence. And he said, well, listen, you have to understand. And, and if you expect an immediate ROI, this isn't a good use of your money. And he said, listen, I have a pocket of budget that is brand and community. And that does not have, that doesn't require any other metrics. Oh, right? wow. It doesn't have any attribution associated with it. We understand that some portion of the marketing spend we make, we will not have the ability to down to the cent to decide how effective it was, but we will use our human judgment to understand whether we think it was effective. And uh, wow. I think that that's, I think that that, again, like how do you do that on a day-to-day -day basis in practice, I think is challenging because I do understand that people say we need to understand if this money's worth it. But I, my instinct is that we zoom out a little bit and we look at overall sales and marketing spend against, mm. you know, lifetime value. And then when we're looking at channels, I think we can still look at, you know, how effective they are and how leads are performing. But I think marketers must be measured not just on attribution, but on overall revenue. If we assume that sales and marketing are working together to drive revenue, then I don't, I, if I'm going to hire a CMO for a revenue collective, their, their main, their bonus will be determined on our attainment of our company revenue goal. It will not be on any kind of like, well, you know, we're going to assume that marketing contributes 35% of, you know, 60% of pipeline and 35% of revenue. And so we're going to look at the end of the year and if marketing contributed 20% of revenue, you're going to, you know, get half your bonus. And if they contributed 50%, I don't, I don't, that's not how I'm going to do it. I don't think people should do it like that, but that's just my opinion. That's cool. I didn't know that about Kyle and having that, that budget. I mean, what a neat, thing to have in there. Not a big part of your budget, but it's part of it to spend and invest knowing that brand's important. Um, what, what do you see as the power of brand that we've sort of forgotten over the last? I think decade? brand is, um, I mean, the brand is kind of like the whole thing for me. So, yeah. so what is it? You know, well, it's the, it's the feeling and how do you build a great one? Maybe is like 
a better way of saying it. But listen, sure. I think brand is the thing that that creates uh, <laughs> that creates great LTV to CAC ratios. You know, brand <laughs> is the thing that is the feeling that people have when they talk about your company. And what is that? And and so how do you distill it down? Like what creates a great brand and why is it important? A great brand is created from um, from a delightful customer experience. And when customers have amazing experiences, they have a great relationship with the brand. So fundamentally, I think brands are created by the interaction that your customer has with your product and how you support the customer. And if you do that effectively and at scale, I think what you, what you are able to do is create an amazing experience for your customers that creates a great brand. And what that does is they get, they tell other people and those people become leads or prospects or, or whatever without having to spend a lot of money to get their attention. And that is how you have really efficient, you know, you have efficient sales, you have sales and marketing efficiency, and that's how you have great, you know, that's how you acquire a customer at a really cheap customer acquisition cost and have high lifetime value. It's because you're not spending a lot of money on advertising and all that other stuff because people are telling their friends. And that comes from the brand itself. So fundamentally, I think, you know, because brand is, really ultimately about how people feel emotionally when they hear about your company, that emotion is going to come from how you treat your customers and how well you've aligned their expectations to what you actually deliver. Man, brand, brand can be powerful and then you just can't really measure that, right? So the, those customer referrals that came in because a friend told a friend, maybe you hear about it or maybe it gets attributed to your organic you know, right. search or, you know. Exactly. It's like, yeah, exactly. Or maybe it gets attributed to the SDR channel and the SDR team's being really effective. But brand is a halo that lowers the cost for everything. Brand's the thing. And brand is also the thing that helps you. I mean, it is, it is a moat, you know. It is a competitive advantage oh. that can separate you from the rest of the landscape in ways that... um are powerful. Revenant Collective has a great brand. And again, that's why, you know, all of our, we don't spend any money on sales and marketing, you know, really? we, just don't, but you yeah. do on brand. Not really. I Not spend really? money. Uh, I mean, uh, we built a website, but I spend money on brand because I treat my, I like, I obsess about my customers. Yeah. That's how I, that's customer how I, experience, that's how I build my brand, you know? So, so how, how did you make it a good brand? How did, how do you do that? You deliver more than what people expect you to. Got it. Okay. The, the expectations and you're just sort of surpassing those. Right. And it's related to the price, of course. And, you know, it's that whole triangle of price to value to expectation. And if you, if you can, it doesn't even matter what the price is. It just has to matter that the price conveys something to the customer. Right. And if you can do more than whatever they expect for that price, you can, you can create a great brand or right. you can, and, and again, like sometimes doing more isn't necessarily like working harder. It just might be reinventing an experience. You know, it's interesting because that, that experience isn't really top of the funnel. You know, it's not your, it's like, af, it's taking care of the people you already have. That's, that's what, that's the secret sauce. And it's really not so, it sounds obvious. But in a world where venture capital is plentiful and the cost of money is free, interest rates are zero, the Fed's buying corporate bonds. So, you know, equity values are inflated. What am I, what's my point? The point is when there's infinite venture capital going into early stage companies, that venture capital is predicated on a certain revenue growth rate. And that revenue growth rate is going to be driven by new customer acquisition. And that new customer acquisition is going to remove the focus from the existing customers, even if nobody ever says it. Because it's, it's because once you start charging for your thing and you've raised venture capital, or another way of saying it is you, whatever flavor of capital you've raised, it's at a very high valuation that needs a certain growth rate to be justified. Right. The growth rate is the thing and the clock is ticking. And it's, it's a very meaningful clock because if you run out of time, even if the moment that the bloom is off the rose, you know, the founders are no longer in control of the company. Right. And so all of this is interconnected. So all of what that, all of these things mean is that it's very hard to focus on the existing customer because you feel like you won't be growing quickly enough. 
which which is like a myth and a misnomer, and it's just driven by this artificial influence of outside funding. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely companies, again, venture capital is like, you know, Josh Koppelman from First Round says, you know, it's, it's jet fuel and not, every, not everybody's flying a jet. And maybe that's, a, maybe that's a useful metaphor. It's not clear to me. But what it is is a very blunt instrument. And, um, and it's hard to understand. I don't think most people, including venture capitalists, I don't think most people do understand when and where it's appropriate, including right. sometimes me. Like, it's hard to know. It's hard to know when is the time that if I had just had $10 million, I could go 100 miles an hour. And how will I know that I would have gone 100 miles an hour without the $10 million? Right. It's, it's very hard to know. You have to have a lot of confidence. We are not raising and have no intention of raising venture capital because of everything that I'm talking about. But I will tell you that we are growing more quickly than most companies in Revenue Collective. And we are growing at what people would describe as venture rates. Okay. But it has not... And I want to, I love growth. You know, sure. I want to grow very sure, quickly. Sure, sure, yeah. But the way that I want to grow is by making, doing everything that, that I can with, while still getting, you know, reasonable sleep and having a life and stuff, everything I can to make my customers who are what we call them members, every, you know, many people do for membership communities, but everything I can to make my members happy. Right. And if I can do that, I strongly and firmly believe that, relative to the price that we charge, it's so surprising some of the things that we do that that's why they post on LinkedIn, you know, like right. there was a post this week, a guy wrote an article, not even a post, you know, he like created a, an article on LinkedIn and like wrote 2000 words on why Revenue Collective is so great. And I didn't pay him to do it and had no idea he was doing it. Yeah. Do you start getting the traffic and you start getting tagged and you're like, oh, geez, what's happening? That happens um, a couple of times a week. Yeah. Yeah. And um, people put in their LinkedIn profiles, right? Uh, yeah. It's almost like that metaphor of, you know, if you're so focused on the Legion side, you're like picking the berries and you put them in your, in your bag, but your, if your bag's leaking, you know, if, if your churn is there, services or membership or product, no matter what it is, if, if you're churning customers, then you're, now you're like a drug addict. Now you got to keep feeding it berries because they keep falling out the back end. Right. And all of those berries, uh, difference, you know, the berries have mouths and they tell other berries. <laughs> they do. Little angry go. berries. That was <laughs> yeah. a horrible experience. This, this bucket sucks. <laughs> right. They, they go bounce, berry bouncing over to Yelp and to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. LinkedIn and social oh, and, you know, on there. Anyway. Yes, exactly right. So it's hard to, the problem with this approach is that it's really hard to forecast, yeah. you know, but uh, it's hard to plan around. Nevertheless, um, I think that the more customer, I mean, again, everybody says it, but it's like, well, what does it mean in practice? What it means in practice is probably, and again, this is controversial, but like that's, I always say the sales team should be the last, last team you hire. Hmm. You know, you should hire the marketing team first. You should hire, you should nail the product first. You should take your initial set of customers. You should obsess about them. You should continue. Mm -hmm. And the more you obsess about them, you'll know when, things start getting good because they'll start telling their friends. That's how you'll know. Yeah. If your customers aren't telling their friends, then by the way, you could still have a company. Yeah. Like you just, you probably can't have a venture scale company. Because they're not telling their friends. Uh, it, it feels like one of the most important things is this customer focus. Been in, like, does marketing own that? You know, and I guess... Sometimes if a company doesn't have a customer experience person or does that person even have power anyways, um, then that sort of doesn't get the attention. And so if brand really relies on that customer experience, I could see why maybe marketing sort of stepped up and was like, well, we look at everything. But sometimes I could see them being so focused on Legion because it's like, that's your area. Yeah. Do you, do you see this where people, I mean, how, in, 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 as a marketer, if, if one of the best things you can do is brand and it's out of your control, that just seems why, like if brand is sort of this other thing that you're not in control of because you're not, it's a, part, a little bit of everybody's in control of that with the experiences and the touch points with the customers. I don't know. It seems really challenging to, to scoop up brand and take care of it. You're damn right. It is challenging. And marketing is, that's why I always say marketing is the most interesting discipline 
Besides product, I mean, I guess they're all interesting. No, finance is objectively not interesting. And I actually <laughs> I don't think sales that is that, <laughs> sales as a discipline is not particularly interesting. Sales, the act of selling is interesting because you get to yes. talk to people and you get to learn about people's stories and you get to tell stories and that's cool. But the discipline of sales, I don't find particularly stimulating, but I find the discipline of marketing extremely stimulating because it is all about how do you tell that message when do you tell that message? To right. whom do you tell that message? And to your point, because brand is so directly tied to the customer experience, and by the way, I'm like, we are discovering these theorems as we talk because I hadn't yeah. formulated it this way before. So this is kind of cool. cool. But um, it's got to come from the CEO. That's sort of like the answer to the question. Yeah. You know, the CEO has to put the customer at the, so, and, and I think the other part of that is everybody says they do, but like, what is it? actually mean. And I think you have to find examples where you are making nothing in an, you know, a no assholes rule as one of your values doesn't mean anything because, you know, I may think I'm being a nice guy and someone else thinks I'm being an asshole. Most people yeah. don't. What does that I'm mean? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and similarly saying members first or customers first doesn't really mean anything. If you can't find places where you made a decision that hurt some other thing in favor of this specific value. If there's no sacrifice implied or no, no opportunity cost, then it's not really a value because you don't have to do anything to support it. So, you know, that's a whole other conversation about how do you put customers at the center of your company. But for us and for what I think, it's, there's a lot of things and, and a lot of it's related to automation and efficiency. You know, we've got, yeah. um, we have an enrollment management team now, which is, you know, they're like inbound SDRs basically but they are qualifying and, and full cycle SMB reps, whatever, whatever the nomenclature is. <laughs> People apply to Revenue Collective, they interview them, they decide if they get to join, if they get to join, they sign them up. And so, you know, there was a period where- Do they ever we say like, no? Oh, absolutely. They do? Okay, so it's not just like, I'm a sales guy, I want to sell to everyone. Everyone should be in the revenue, you know, like- Oh, uh, no. Uh, the acceptance rate, first, most people get disqualified because they just do not fit the profile. And okay. that's about- 35%, uh, you know, no consultants, no founders, no investors. Um, Interesting. And then the second reason they get to qualify is because they're, you know, a jerk. And who gets to say that they're a jerk? We do, <laughs> since it's our community. I'm with you on that one. That's great. Um, which just means they want to take more than they want to give. You know, it's like they're out of a job, which is totally fine. People can sign up for Revenue Collective and we do help people find jobs, but it's That's like, cool. well, I didn't find it. You didn't send me enough listings last week. It's like, this is not a lead gen, you know, employment service. This not your recruiter. A, yeah, exactly. Um, but the point is, the long-winded point is that to put the customer at the, for, at the center of your experience, that involves trade-offs and, and you need to, and if you can't find any trade-offs that you're making, then it's not really a value. And right. for us, one of the trade-offs is we could process a lot more applications if A, we didn't interview everybody and B, if we automated massive parts of the interaction process. And we could have templates for, you know, fill this form out, templates for when people don't show up for an interview, templates for, and we're not going to do that because we want people to have a personalized experience. And so we're going to force our enrollment team to write handwritten mail, emails, even though it's going to take them more time. It's yeah. because we're not, I, I don't, I'm not solving for my own efficiency. I want to solve for the customer. I want to solve for the customer's experience. You know, the, anyway, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of different places where, where we try to make those trade-offs, but if you can't find any, then that's a problem. But it all starts with making sure that you truly give a shit about your customers. Right. And I, I think, I think you called it when you said that, I mean, marketers, anybody, we all like to say that CEOs, I'm sure. Oh, customer focused. I mean, how many synonyms do we have for customer focused? But are you really? And I, I remember a, a Jeff Bezos interview where he was saying it, you know, the trade-off, you're either thinking about your competitor or your customer. And it's one of the two. Easy for Amazon to say. I don't know if he has any competitors at this point, but like the idea of like, are you obsessed with who's coming after you? Or are you obsessed with that thing you've been talking about, which is that customer and that experience right. that you're having? Exactly. I don't, yeah. and there are so many communities you know, popping up right now. And I don't, I give the smallest shit about them in the sense yeah. that like, 
I want people to join any community that they find value in. So I have nothing, right. no disparaging remark to make about anybody. They're right. just not a focus, you know? Right. Like, I don't care. I, what I'm doing is I'm getting fee, I'm doing stuff. One of our other values is listen closely, act quickly. Hmm. And that's one of the ways that you put the customer at the center is you listen to what they say and you have a filter to figure out, you know, is it, and some of that's just judgment, you know, is that a good idea or not? If enough people say it, then it's probably a good idea. If one person says it, but you've got really good intuition on the customer, then it might be still a good idea. And then do it quickly so that they can see right. that it's evolving all the time. They can see that their feedback is shaping the product. That gives people a sense of ownership. And you're right. You could automate the shit out of it, right? I'm sure there's plenty of communities out there that are your competitors that you don't want to learn from because what they're doing right now is they're, they didn't have to hire three of those people that you did because they just made it a, like a self-service checkout at the grocery store, you know? Exactly. And you and know we what? all know how fun those yeah. things are. And you'll, you'll ditch that a lot faster than you'll ditch a relationship you have with the person you talked before you got into the, the association, the, the collective, right? So it's like the relationships bond us more and, and those kind of experiences are way more impactful than the self-checkout line. I agree with you. Obviously, I agree with you. You know, it's interesting too, because like core values, one of my core values in our company is like, we care. Like, so it's, we care, we have fun, we get things done. Um, and it was even, it's a good challenge to me. I, I love the point around it, it, what, what do you sacrifice on the other end? And if these are just like rainbow happiness, gold pot at the end of it, like everything's grand with our core values. No, it, it there should be an edge to it. Like, we aren't going to get as many customers because we are going to be selective or we are going to do this or we do care about them. And, and if you don't care, that's a problem. Like you need to leave right. if you don't care. Um, but you're right. It's like, what, what is the sacrifice? Because I think that might even help us further refine the value itself, which is like, okay, what is it not? What do you not want just as much as what you do want? Absolutely. Exactly. What do you see coming, coming around the future? I mean, we're in the middle of COVID nation and we've got all sorts of things changing and going remote and, and you're at the sort of center point of sales and marketing and brand and all these things. Are there some good things we should be on the lookout for coming around the bend? I hope so. I hope so too. I think, <laughs> I think um, what I, I mean, everybody, not everybody, you know, people have often talked about maybe the rise of authentic language in marketing yeah in in you know the, the the demise of corporate speak and i am hopeful that covid was one more nail in the coffin of corporate speak of just companies talking like robots and not sounding like human beings and people working at companies not sounding like human beings and emails from sdrs that are just full of <laughs> frankly, some of them again are, I love our sponsors, but some of them, the copy they give us to read for, uh, you know, for like podcast advertising. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're like, I'm not going to so, say that. <laughs> all right. We'll say, say that. that. It's God. It's like, this is gobbledygook, you know? And I, my hope is that with this work-life integration that we're all experiencing and just the, the realness of it, the rawness yeah. of it, that we can all just be a little bit more that we can just speak plainer to each other. Right. This is, you know, um, that's my hope. That's my hope that, that like more, and that doesn't mean, you know, quote unquote, leading with empathy or, you know, saying, how are you doing in these uncertain times? Because that also sounds like bullshit, but more just like honest human dialogue between yeah. customers and companies. That I think maybe is something, and just more personality. I know that, when, uh, when, you know, COVID was first hitting in March and April and I was in my living room all day, you know, and I really wanted to make sure that I was connecting with the, with the Revenue Collective community. And I put more of myself into those emails than I ever have. You know, I attached pictures of my dog, yeah. one that you just saw, Casey. <laughs> right. Um, you know, Walter, um, almost know his name, but, uh, <laughs> almost and, and know. just like, <laughs> You know, like we all have got kids, we've all got pets, we've all, parents are worried about what happens when we all go back to school in, in September or if we go back to school. Uh, kids are worried about their, you know, their elderly parents and what's happening to them and how they're isolated. I just think that that, that fact 
this intrusion of Mm -hmm. this pandemic into all of our lives hopefully has taken down a little bit of the bullshit. And and there's just a little bit more reality to all of our professional existence that mirrors our personal existence. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's my generation. I don't know what it is, but uh, could you imagine the, you know, everyone wearing suits on podcasts or doing zoom meetings. We're all, we're all wearing ties to, uh, I was having a conversation earlier with someone saying, yeah, you may, maybe on the top, but nobody knows like, like the bottom could be a soft bottom. Like, <laughs> you know, I've worn more soccer shorts these days than I've worn in a long time, but I, I am glad to see it transforming and becoming more real and seeing people's houses. I mean, I like your ceiling by the way. And you know, like <laughs> you don't have a fake background on and I, I don't know. What, what's your thought on the fake background thing? Is that, is that just fun or? I think there's something we always have to remember. Uh, it's the same thing as work from home remote stuff, right? Yeah. Fake background is fun for some people, but for some people they're actually uh, economically disadvantaged. Mm. There's a lot of people that don't make that much money. And yeah. they're probably self-conscious about what you see in the background. And sure. so that's um, same thing with like work from home. You know, the guys like you and me sort of, you know, a little bit older, we have some rooms, some space. We're like work from home's great. I've been doing, you know, whatever. Remote work is fantastic. Right. We've got young people out there in the workforce that are living in cities where, you know, prior to COVID, they could barely afford to pay rent. They've got three right. roommates in a shoebox apartment. And for them, work from home is being on top of three other smelly people. You know, a bunch of people don't wash their dishes or put their dishes in the dishwasher, like roommates. working out of the living room. Yeah. Um, and that sucks. So yeah. I think that a lot of these things, like the obvious thing would be like, oh, it's so stupid and silly, the Zoom backgrounds. But I think that there's a lot of people and I'm very sensitive and empathetic mm. to the people that are like, you know what, I don't, and they talked a lot about, it, especially in school, especially for classrooms where, you know, yeah. social pressure is even more acute Yeah, that, you know, you don't want, it's nobody's business how much money you have or For what sure. your house looks like or whether you've got the new flat screen or not the new flat screen. And so I think that's why Zoom, you need to have a computer powerful enough to put on a Zoom background. You do. But, uh, do you have one? Do you? I could, I could do it right now. I, have my I don't. <laughs> handy dandy revenue collective uh, Zoom background. Got it. Mine is but, old reliable. Um, it's, it's been around since the 2000s or something. <laughs> I know. This like, thing is, yeah. This thing is like it's like I can turn your hat green, but I can't turn your background <laughs> green. That's exactly. it. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point, though, around the just, you don't know people's experiences. So, you know, to your point, a little more authentic, a little more human, a little less judgy would be great. Well, you know, I had a question. It's kind of nagging at me. I, I brought up the whole judgment thing and, and not to get back too much on the attribution, but the one thing around like justifying marketing, I feel like a lot of times we, we go crazy on attribution because we're trying to justify our jobs in the print shops before, um, you know, the 2010s, like you were talking about, we were print shops and you get rid of the print shop if you need to cut budget. And you see some of that even today where people who haven't done that transformation, they still see people as print shops. And, and so it's like, okay, we got to justify everything, not just from an ROI perspective, but so we don't lose our jobs. And so we can justify that marketing exists here, should have a seat at the table, all that. Do you see any of that changing? And is that a misplaced anxiety around or and is there a solution to that? I don't know that there's the solution. The solution is education. Okay. But it's just so damn hard because account executive is on the phone with somebody. Yep. And they take out their credit card and the account executive's name gets to be next to the deal. Yeah. And so you say, here's what the sales team did. They made us this much money. How much money right. did you make, marketing department? And that's easy. You can track that. You can show that. Right. There exactly. And you know, what are they? We don't need any more emails or whatever. So I, I do... Um, I understand definitely the incentive, the the urgent need that some people feel to justify their existence. And ultimately, I worry that that's fundamentally a misunderstanding of what marketing is and what the value is. And that is coming from the CEO and from right. you know, the people that make these, the broader resource allocation decisions. And again, I can just tell you, you know, I'm, I'm pleased with myself uh, my coach says, what's one thing you're grateful for? And what's one thing you're proud of? You know, nice. uh, when we, when we like talk, 
I'm proud of the fact that I'm building the company that I run in accordance with the ideas that I have espoused and articulated in the content that I produce on LinkedIn and on podcasts and stuff like that. The point that I'm making is that, you know, I'm definitely hiring a CMO before a CRO. You know, I'm definitely going to like sales. I want the sales team such as it is to catch demand, but I feel like demand is fundamentally created from the marketing team working with the customer success team and the product team. Right, right. Um, Huge. Makes total sense. Uh, I was talking to uh, Christopher Engman. I don't know if you've met him. He's from Sweden. I don't know. Okay. He wrote uh, the the Mega Deals book, but his whole thing is he will come into a company, maybe investor, sort of marketing advisor, and he'll recommend they trim, they, they get efficient on the sales side, repurpose all that into the marketing side to do that. Exactly what you said, the idea of the, the catch, they're catching deals. Sales is catching deals more than they're like the old school relied, go and, go and get the deal, you know? Yeah. I, now again, like there's lots and lots of venture capitalists who have seen large enterprise tech IPOs and, you know, company evolution cycles. And they will say, I have seen the worst product win with that has the better sales and marketing execution. They have these, you know, they have their hire the guy from Adobe or the gal from Oracle or Mm -hmm. SAP. Um, But that just hasn't been my experience. My experience is that if you're trying super, super hard to convince somebody to do something that they fundamentally don't want to do by hiring a hundred salespeople, there might be something wrong with the thing that you're building. Yeah. And, and if you just took, I'm always reminded of, you know, I don't think Larry Page, I don't think it's his quote, but maybe he's paraphrasing a different quote, but sure. He's like, you'll always overestimate how, how much you can do in a quarter and underestimate mm. how much you can do in 10 years. And people think certain things are just going to take way longer than they actually end up taking if you just slow down, breathe, and do the fundamental work first. And that is often, hey, before we hire a massive sales team, let's make sure that the people that are currently using the thing are loving it. And if they're not, I understand that that pushes out, you know, this quarter's ARR projection, but it doesn't matter if they don't yeah. like the product. Right. Right. And you, it's not a pyramid scheme. You can't, like cajoling people is expensive to try to cajole them into buying your it's exactly your the right way to put it. It is expensive. That's yeah. it's not that it's impossible. It's that it's very expensive. Right. Hiring a hundred human beings to cold call. I don't give a shit if you're using connect and sell or what, or outreach or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like it's expensive. It's ex- and and it's not just expensive from a dollar perspective. You know, your brand, your brand, your employment brand is on the line. If you don't yeah. have, this is why, this is why the customer experience is everything. Because mm. if you are making customers happy, your employees will feel better, your investors will feel better, and of course, your customers will feel better. And when you are doing something that you know doesn't work, you think that it feels good inside that company, you think people are high-fiving. I've worked at companies where the thing doesn't work. It sucks. Yeah. And you're like, what are we, what are we, what are we doing? What are we selling? And who are we? Endless, endless executive meetings, you know, with did you build this thing and the, you know, just finger pointing and like, no fun. Yeah, no fun. I remember that was one of my struggles early on in the marketing world was just, what am I doing? Like, am I helping? What am I, I mean, I'm like emailing people. Is that, I mean, it's not the Peace Corps. I get that. But also like, am I helping the process in it all here? And what are we doing? It's like, do more, but do more of that. <laughs> so, hey, yeah. who are you, man? Like, how did you become you how did you get all these experiences could you take us back in time to like little sam days where'd you grow up what was it what was it did you always know you're going to be doing you know building things and connecting people i hoped i hoped yeah um little sam is the youngest child of three okay who grew up overseas because his parents and some people they make two assumptions they think it's my dad and they think it's the CIA. So it was not the CIA. Now, of course, if it was the CIA, I couldn't tell you, but it wasn't. It was the State Department. And it was my, both my parents worked in the State Department. And in fact, wow. my mom became an ambassador, um, which is, you know, the highest rank that, that you can get. That's amazing. What country was she the ambassador to? Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, and the Solomon Islands. Holy crap. 
She was in the South Pacific. Um, so I grew up overseas in India, Israel, and El Salvador. Wow. I came back to the States for eighth grade in Northern Virginia, outside DC. So I say that I'm from the DC area. I went to the University of Virginia. I but what was that um, like as a kid though? Just stop yours for a second. You're like growing up in different cultures and languages and it's not it's, the regular old. It's not as cool upper, as it sounds, I guess you know? is the way I would put it. I, I, I was too, I was just at the age where it felt like all a mat, like a little bit of an inconvenience. Yeah. You know, if I was in high school or now, obviously now would be amazing. You know, yeah. like I'd love to live in India for three years knowing that I got to move back to the States at the end <laughs> right. of it. Um, or El Salvador, El Salvador, in fact, probably more dangerous than India, but, um, but it was just hard mainly because like you'd be somewhere and you'd be the new person for a year and you'd be missing your old friends. And then finally you'd make new friends and then you'd be prepared to be preparing to leave again. Right. But I have to think, I'll tell you one thing that it did give me was in a way that, you know, candidly, when I meet other, you know, upper class liberal white people, which is I, I've seen other forms of government. I've seen mm. other cultures and I have a very deep and abiding love and appreciation for the United States, despite all of its many and apparent flaws. Right. But traveling abroad, we it, do that for sure. And you, you realize just how much you have. I mean, I, I've seen like streets in Iraq with no sewers, like the sewer is the street. Hey, you know, like, you wouldn't imagine that, but then you, now you appreciate every time you flush the toilet, you're like, wow, Absolutely. that's awesome. And yeah. all of the, and, and the spirit of the, anyway, so, yeah. so that was, the, that was, you know, that was foundational for me. I mean, it's a story I tell at this point, but the thing that I, and I do love traveling, but it made me love the USA, yeah. um, you know, even more in a way that I hope doesn't come across as like jingoistic or anything like that. It's no, just, no. It's just but reality. I, I could imagine. Was it crazy then that now you're in the U.S. at, at like eighth grade? <laughs> yes, it was horrible. Uh, what, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Like I could you know, see that too. Kids my are psychological nice. evolution was dramatically impaired by my return to the United States because really? all of the other kids were, um, they'd all been going to the same elementary school, you know, Cooper, Longfellow for, you know, from people from Northern Virginia like six, uh, yeah. the whole time. Like they were, they had established their cliques. And for, and I, I was, you know, quote unquote, like I felt confident overseas at these diplomatic schools because the diplomatic schools, frankly, celebrate, they were like private schools in the sense that they celebrated creativity. They celebrated artistic talent. Yeah. Being in a play wasn't uncool, you know? Sure. You could play sports and be in a play and be a painter. And I got back to, you know, the suburbs of, uh, of Northern Virginia at a time, you know, and that's, it wasn't quote unquote, cool. Mm. You know, there's stigma around being creative. There's stigma around being artistic. I, I felt deeply self-conscious and that, um, so anyway, that's what it was like. Yeah. It was okay. You know, um, but, uh, and I do have this creative bent, you know, I have this creative side of me. So coming out of UVA, I actually started a record label and you know, was so you survived um, school because, like, I'm with you. I hated high school, and then, uh, like, I like survived college. I feel like that too. You know, I've got friends that are that. I mean, listen, second semester of my, we'd call it, you know, at UVA, it's like first, second, third, fourth year instead of freshman, right. sophomore, whatever. But second semester of my fourth year, that was uh, it was 1999. You know, the one of the best job markets that I can ever remember. I had, I had a job lined up from. Thanksgiving. Wow. I had, I don't recall having more fun in that, in that period of <laughs> sure. January to, you know, April or May than UVA uh, parties. Are, they're notorious. My, my dad and my mom went there and I hear about bathtubs filled with purple juice and all sorts of crazy things. I designed my schedule so that uh, my classes started on Monday and ended my last class ended at Wednesday at noon. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had two and a half days of classes so uh anyway so but yeah i i would i'm not i'm kind of like on your page in the sense yeah. that like college was great and listen i'm still good good friends with all my friends from college those are my lifelong friends but i don't yearn to go back to college at all in fact you know now at 43 this is the happiest i've ever been 
This yeah. is the prime. And every year since about 20, uh, I think it was 17, October 2017 has been a better year than the previous year. Wow. So I just feel like I'm just, now is when I'm getting going. All the other stuff was, you know, the prologue to this. Yeah. I, I feel that too. I, I know what you're talking about where it just, you start appreciating more and things just start clicking and coming together and the focus is there and all that. Yeah. Uh, for me, it is about uh, realizing, like discovering my work ethic and really understanding what it means to work, to actually work hard, to live up to mm-hmm. the potential. And then it was beginning to just trust my own confidence and judgment that yeah. I knew what I was doing. And that it was okay and, you know, I could make a decision and trust it and know that it was the right decision. So right out of, out of school, you're starting companies. You're just like, let's do this. Oh, no, not at all. I was, no? I, I was an investment banking. I started this record label on the side and then I quit investment banking because it was the dot-com boom and everybody was getting rich and I wanted to get my taste, but I wanted to do a record label. So I moved to, back to Charlottesville for a bunch of friends that were musicians. And the thinking was that, they wouldn't know what they were doing, so they needed a business person behind them to support mm. them. And I didn't realize until after I started doing that that they were actually pretty average musicians. And <laughs> it's not hard enough to make it. We, there was one of the bands where the drummer just couldn't keep time. You know, like that's an important part of being a drummer is rhythm. What's the, what's the quote? Like you had one job, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. So you had one job in the band. He would practice for hours and it just, it did not come like naturally to him. So, yeah. um, (laughs) so that was, that was like, that was a, that was, that was, that was tough. You know, we call those the bad old days, me and my friends, because it was just like, I had this vision of myself as this young entrepreneur that was going to make it big in the world. And that's just not what happened at all. And I kind of, I had to move back home, tail between my legs a little bit. And then things actually got going in 2003. And that's when I moved up to New York for the second time and discovered this company called Gerson Lehrman Group. And, um, that company was a rocket ship and I got in, you know, entry level, mm-hmm. but, and that was when basically my career actually started and I was right. there for seven and a half years and helped wow. them go. From That's a long time. So you're not leapfrogging all over the place. Like a lot of people. Well, more recently I was uh, more recently. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, but that, and that's why I started Revenue Collective was because I was seven and a half years at GLG, four and a half years at Axial, two years at Livestream, nine months at the Muse, 10 months at Behavox. And I felt like. I was, I had gotten on some merry-go-round that I didn't know how to get off. It was going the opposite direction, right? It was like yeah. seven, four, three, two, one. <laughs> it's just shorter one. and shorter and shorter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, definitely it's me, you know, like definitely I'm a pain in the ass to work with sometimes. And I thought I was smarter than most of the CEOs that I worked with. And sure. that's a problem. It really <laughs> is a problem. Um, and it's, and it's just like a fundamental, it's sort of an entitled perspective you know it's a little spoiled because it's like if you know how to do it better then you should go off and do it better like this is their company (laughs) stop like stop getting upset that the company belongs to them it obviously belongs to them that's why they're the founder and ceo like either get in line and embrace their vision or leave so right that's ultimately i finally did that that's smart right yeah rather than fighting it or staying there and hating it like it's like you left the nest kind of thing yeah exactly Sick. Well, um, and, and now, I mean, how big is Revenue Collective? How many members are, I mean, how, how, how is it doing? It's doing the, listen, the truth is that it's like well beyond my wildest dreams. And yeah. at the same time, you know, your dreams expand. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It's a moving target, right? I, yeah. When I started, when I started doing it, um, I started like bringing people together for dinner in 2013 and it was just a dinner club and it was free. Right. And I thought maybe this will, I didn't think anything of it. Mainly what I thought was that it seems really stupid to go to dinner and not communicate between the dinners. Cause we only go to dinner every so often. So then we started, a uh, email group. Then we gave it a name in 2016, New York revenue collective. I said, okay, like, this is cool, you know, yeah. and we'll make it like invite only. And uh, maybe it'll help me get a job, you know, who knows? Or maybe it'll just help me connect to other people and just like, you know, I like helping people. It's fun, but it was free. And then we started charging dues January 1, 2018. And then it was, you know, let, well, first let's see if anybody will pay dues. 
Right. That must have been a scary moment to go from, we're all here for free and for fun to go, okay, well, does this thing have value to you or not? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, almost everybody paid, which was amazing. Wow. It was only 50 bucks. So it wasn't like it was yeah. 50 bucks a month, but it was something. They had to get out yeah. their credit card. Yeah. So then, um, so then it was growing and it was like, you know, I was like, maybe this can be side income stream. But I still assumed, I just kept downplaying it, you know, in my head because I'm yeah. like, you know, these things are easy to start. I'm yep. assuming every city has their sales executive meetup or their enterprise sales meetup or some kind of executive meetup or whatever the hell. Yeah. So, um, you know, but this will just be my thing and I'll make some money on the side. And then the true catalyst was, you know, December 2018, the end of another, this was another short stint as a CRO. And I was just worn out and I said, maybe I should just try focusing on this full time. And then it was, okay, if I can get it to 2000 people by the end of 2020, then that should be enough where I can like live, you know, I can live comfortably. Um, It'll be my thing. I'll have freedom. You know, I won't be, I won't be some super ultra rich, you know, philanthropist like like I previously dreamed of, but like, you know, I will be, it'll be my thing and it'll be, and I can live. And now it's, you know, it's July 29th, uh, 2020. So, you know, five months before, just into the second half of the year, we're at 2,600 members. Wow. Um, you know, the original goal was 500 by the end of 2019, 2,000 by the end of 2020, 5,000 by the end of 2021. The new goal is 4,000 by the end of 2020, 10,000 by the end of 2021, Jeez. and 100,000 uh, by the end of 2024. And now, you know, again, like your vision expands. At first it yeah. was like, now I realize, no, nobody else is doing this and nobody's doing it in this way with these values. And nobody else is me. And um, if I just stay true to the values of helping people, helping individual human beings and, and not making it bigger than that, there's a lot of different professions that need this. There's a lot of, there's obviously millions of salespeople and millions of marketing people. And if we only have 2,500 people, then there's obviously a, an ocean more of people to serve. Sure. And this could be structured in a way that we structure it, the future of all professional education you know, the future of yeah. professional certification, or at least one part of that future. Right. Wow. I know for sure that something, I'll make up a stat, but it feels like 30% of the people I've talked to on this podcast are in the collective. And so I keep seeing it and like, what is this thing? And just even seeing it in people's LinkedIn profiles as, you know, and I start talking to people about it and Kyle and other folks. And uh, yeah, I, I can see those goals happening. I can see it hitting those numbers. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are cool, but like, you know, most of, but the coolest thing is like, how do we take the size and how do we repurpose it so that it really can be a benefit? Like, how is being bigger better for you? That's Casey, true. Better for you, right. How is it better for the member? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are ways that it is better, you know, in yeah. many ways. In fact, one of the ways is more bargaining power, more leverage. If we want to, if we want every executive to have six months of severance pre-negotiated, well, it's a lot more powerful when 10,000 people want that than when 100 people want it. Yeah. If we want to do benchmarking studies so that everybody knows what's the conversion ratio from MQL to SQL for SMB businesses in the Northeast, well, if you only have three people that fit that profile, it's really hard to do anything with it. But if you have 100,000 people, then you're going to have 2,000 people that fit that profile and you can run really targeted surveys on behalf of the membership and give people really interesting data sets that they can use every single day in the course of their work. So there's a lot of, and then the global part of it is just, just so awesome. Yeah. The, um, I was talking to this guy, his name's Greg Meehan. Greg Meehan is the CRO of a company. I think they're called Supahans. They're in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, or right, Indonesia. Um, anyway, they're in Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> right. Over there. Um, and uh, I was talking to him about starting the Kuala Lumpur Revenue Collective, like that chapter, that regional chapter, yeah. which is obviously like a surreal conversation. And he's like uh, talking about how he had just got off the phone with Martin Roth. Martin's the chief revenue officer of a company called Level Set, which is in the construction tech industry. Okay. Martin's in New Orleans. Martin is an exceptional 
revenue leader, an awesome human being, is of course a Revenue Collective member. But these two people would never have known each other without Revenue mm. Collective. And they had this amazing 30-minute phone call about structuring sales teams and comp plans and things like that in a way that would just not have been possible otherwise. So right. that's what gets me extremely fired up. You know, I'm a member of EO. I don't know if you've heard of yeah, of course. organization. Yeah. Um, and I see like a really interesting parallel because, because of the different, um, and they don't just let everyone in, right? So because of this a bit of a selectiveness and the training that people go through, um, whenever I've chatted on something like podcast or, any, or I meet someone and it's like, they're also in EO, I almost feel like I can talk to them in a different way. Like it's yeah. almost like they've been pre-screened like, oh, you're a good person. And you can relate to me and you also know the tenets of this group we've all joined, which is not every group, right? Not every group has that kind of thing, but I feel there's some magic to that, to your point. That's exactly right. That's so, what's so cool about culture, right? Is that you and me can be like, we can work together. I don't know, XYZ company and you're the head of marketing. I'm the head of sales and we fucking hate each other, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but within the four walls of revenue collective, the four, you know, theoretical metaphysical walls, we have values and we say that you're not allowed to be a dick and that if yeah. a revenue collective person reaches out to you to ask for help, that you have to get back to them. doesn't mean you have to give them help, but you yeah. have to get back to them. You have to be responsive. Wow. And just establishing those rules and saying like, behave however you want outside. Inside here, this is how you will behave or you'll yeah. be asked to leave. Right. And people change. They behave yeah. that way. They do. <laughs> they really do. They can learn. You know, so. it, and for the EO thing, like one of the things we've had is like, you can't sell to each other. Like, like yeah. attack someone else with it. Like they can, you can ask someone, can, can you help me? And that's totally fine. But like, you're like, Hey, you're pitch. Right. And then because a lot of people are overwhelmed with pitches. So it, it also creates like, you know, for, for me in that group, like the value that I appreciate is the fact that we can let our, ourselves like our, that sort of veneer down or that, you know, that professional tie, like you can just be yourself and be authentic. Um, not that you're not in the sales process, but you can sort of like let your guard down and be yourself around some of these people. You know, you don't have to be like, watch out. They're going to pitch you. They're going to pitch you. So you just like, okay, let's just talk like people. And maybe if I like you, maybe we might end up doing business, but it's a, it's a better way of doing it. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. Right. We have the same, same frameworks. It's much harder. Uh, I would imagine then, then an EO because they're all salespeople, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, so we try to really crack down. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And we, you, could, you could easily see people abusing that. Oh, I need your help. Get on a call with me. And it's like, the main uh, way they, just, yeah, the main way they abuse it is they, they reach out, they try to connect on LinkedIn and they're like, Hey, I see that you're a member of Revenue Collective. Let's connect. And then you accept the connection request and they say, so anyway, I'd run this service, blah, blah, blah. Here's my pitch. And so Block. we actually <laughs> ask that member screenshot those interactions so that we yeah. can kick people out and we kick people out all the time. The accountability is amazing. It's a protected, a walled garden. It's, it's yeah, awesome. And then stop it. Can, yeah, <laughs> it's great. It's great. Well, hey man, um, I've been chatting your ear off and you probably have to walk that dog at some point. So where are some great places to connect with you? What are like good social platforms? Throw some URLs at us, all that stuff. Well, uh, linkedin.com forward slash the word in forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. That's how you can reach me on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, Of course, you know, would love anybody if they want to listen to the Sales Hacker podcast. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. If you want to check out Revenue Collective, go to revenuecollective.com. And um, yeah, those are the best places. And if you're listening and you want to email me, you can. Sam at revenuecollective.com. Got it. Okay. Well, one, one quick question. You got time for one more question? Yeah, of course. So hypothetical, you go back in time and you see yourself just after graduating UVA. Um, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Uh, this is a, a bit of a depressing answer. <laughs> I would say I, uh, I, I am married, but this, she is my second wife. Yeah. So the first I would say, listen, dude, you're not getting married until your early 30s. I don't care how you feel about it. So that's not happening. Don't do that. <laughs> and uh, that would that's save you a lot. It sounds like that would just save you a lot. <laughs> that would change my life. Now, maybe I'd still have, you know, I still have to learn lessons the hard way. And I feel like I became a man through my first divorce. But, um, but uh, that would be the number one piece of advice. And the second piece of advice I would say is, listen, Take 
the harder, the ease, the sooner you take your life extremely seriously, the more successful you'll be. Wow. Like, don't screw around. This is, you get one chance at this. So whatever you do, just give it, don't do things that you can't be great at and give everything you have to the things that you do. There it is. There it is, man. Thanks for coming on here. And for those people that have been listening, um, if you've learned something and I freaking know you did because I have two pages of notes front and back, then share this episode with someone, be a thought leader to one ninety seven eight eight hundred and four. however big your LinkedIn group is, just but put your thoughts on there first. Don't just share the episode. Tell what you learned. I, we, we learned so much here, the d- different conversations, the triangle, the price, the expectations, the values, the myth. And hopefully after listening to this, we're not all obsessed as much with attribution and we're thinking about ways to power the brand. So, so many good things. Put your thoughts on there. Tag us, tag Sam, tag myself. We'll comment on there. We'll we'll share it. This is good stuff. So Sam, thank you again for coming on here. Thanks for having me. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Absolutely, man. Well, cheers to you and everyone out there listening. This has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We'll catch you all next time. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.